0: can the magnificent seven save us? Can the magnificent seven save us? And I'm not talking about Yul Brenner, Charles Bronson, Steve McQueen, Colburn, and the like. I'm talking about Amazon, Apple, NVIDIA, Meta, Microsoft, Tesla, and Google, man. The big the big seven. Can they save us? And Global PMIs, the uh, Producers Index, that's for the producers, not for the retail like CPI, but the global PMIs came in weak. The global economies are slowing. So what's the solution by the central banks? Well, by God, we're going to raise rates even more. And so that's what the Bank of England, uh, the ECB, and actually Turkey rose put raised their interest rates by, I think, 65 or 7.5% in one fell swoop. That's what happens when you have a really weak currency. All right, and you've heard of the Mosaic Theory, but have you heard of Osaic, not without the M, Osaic? You're going to hear a lot more of them here in the future. They are actually merging their seven different groups. They're known as the Advisor Group, and they're going to be an independent BD. They're the second largest right now, but they're a hodgepodge of seven different companies. They're going to rebrand themselves under one name, and they're going to try to take on rival LPL Financial. So be on the lookout. And Liz Saunders claims that AI can solve our U.S. productivity problems, okay? And that means we're all, we're all in the clear. Don't worry about the debt. We're done. We're going to talk about that. And, and BlackRock is coming out with a spot crypto ETF. They're trying to get approval by the SEC. The SEC has already declined a couple Uh, spot crypto ETFs. But now BlackRock is applying for theirs. And at the same time, Charles Schwab and Fidelity are having a love fest and they're going to open up a crypto exchange together me thinks there's something uh, going on and they're all kind of in cahoots and they're in bed together for the new and improved crypto. Now that we got the rookie shysters out of the way, the Sam Bankman fraud and all the other guys, now the professional shysters can come in and really start it. So now you'll probably see crypto actually start getting a little bit of traction. Now that the big boys, AKA the traditional advisor brotherhood, now that they're in the game, uh, things may change. And, um, um, and by the way, if if you're an advisor and if you're a broker, you got your Series Seven or uh, uh, si- Series Six, and you're tired of being part of the traditional bi- advisor brotherhood, and you don't want to work on commissions and have conflicts with your clients, and you want to be a true fiduciary, give me a call at Revere. We're fee based. We only represent the client. Now, Chin ch- China, <laughs> Chin China versus India, A.K.A. Chin China versus India, who will be the next global? supplier. Isha's going to talk about that and then we're going to bring on Don, Michael, Ted, and kind of the Revere team. But first, I got to give the disclaimer as always, folks. Don't just go out and buy something because a very handsome smart, intelligent guy, Isha's laughing she's going, that's not true. Um, Tells you to to buy uh, a stock on the radio. Uh, Do your own research. Get your own uh, investment advisor or if you need some help, reach out to us. We'd be happy to give you a complimentary portfolio review and you can also. So do that if you just want to have a topic you want discussed on the show. Now, let's talk about the couple of main topics. I put a bunch of articles in the show notes, and you can certainly go read those. They're kind of interesting. One is about the um, um, inflationary cycle. Dan Fuss is saying the inflationary cycle is far from over, even though the Fed has kind of checked it for now. He thinks we're going to have some structural problems. That's a good article. And then there was another one about private credit. Now that the banks are offering, now that the bank's interest rates are so high, there's some private people coming out with private credit, and, and get, especially for investors. You can invest to lend your money at interest. But is that private credit safe? That's another good article. And then the great shift in assets—is it for real? They're talking about shift from stocks to bonds, and that's a pretty good article. And finally, the overregulation—is the SEC overregulating? Uh, Answer is yes. But I'll let you read it. All right, let's get to the two main things that I want to talk about. So this article is called "Optimism versus Pessimism: Stocks versus Bonds," right? So, um, it's saying, after this uh, equity rally we've had, it's easy to forget that there's two fundamentally different mindsets: Glass half full is for stock people. glass half empty is the bond people. they're worried about risk versus uh, stock people are worried about returns. Now, when you buy a bond, you're all you're worried about is getting your principal back plus some interest, right? And so your return is capped. So you're worried more about getting your money back with your interest and you're not worried about uh, higher returns. OK, now there's certain bonds with you can get into discount or whatever. But if you're going to try to buy discounted bonds or distressed bonds, you have more upside with stocks anyway. So we're just talking about plain vanilla bonds. OK, now. Conversely, because stocks have unlimited upside, those who invest are more uh, focused on what could get get it right. Now, it's basically saying that like it or not, fixed income lies at the root of the financial system because of the risk-free rate. And they cap all the equity uh, models, pricing models based on the risk-free rate. Now that interest, but for 10 years, that completely went away. Why? Because they took the risk-free rate down to zero. So you really, there really was no quote risk free way to make money you couldn 't make four or five percent now you can get five percent fairly i mean in treasury bonds short term treasury bonds. so if five percent is all you need you don 't even have to take risk in equity anyway so basically, it says for the better part of two thousand and twenty two equity markets suffered because the cost of money rose dramatically, meaning rates rose enthusiasm for AI was the new catalyst now that rates have stopped going up. It's, it's giving investors and bond, it's starting to cause a, 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 a rally in stocks. Now, here's the question, though. He's saying at the same time the, the stock market has rallied, the inverted yield curve uh, in the bond market is still showing an impending recession. So there's a dichotomy. There's a a, 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 a a bifurcation. The bond market is signaling recession, and the stock market is saying, we think that earnings are going to expand and price multiples are going to expand, and this recession is going to be shallower than we think or we may possibly avoid it due to AI. In any event, they're talking about this diversion. Uh, that's another good article. Along those lines, And I do want to bring this article up. Liz Saunders, she's the chief strategist for uh, Schwab. And she basically uh, is basically, she's the one that's talking about the Magnificent Seven. Can the Magnificent Seven, Apple, Amazon, Meta, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Tesla, and Apple, and Alphabet save this market and help us? And we've talked about this the last two months. Will the markets expand and get broader so you have broader participation In mid and smalls, or will it just be these big three? Now, she said while she acknowledged there's a lot of hype around artificial intelligence, she said the bubble, like the tech wreck that everybody's comparing it to, really doesn't apply. And she's got a decent article. She's saying, look, during the tech wreck, during the internet bubble, there was a lot of these companies that didn't have earnings. It was speculation that they would get earnings. But right now with this AI, these big companies, these big seven, they have earnings. And they're one of the biggest um, benefactors of this AI migration right now because they have all the big databases to be able to mine for the data. Later, it may trickle into the mainstream. Now, here's the thing I disagree with her on. She's saying the productivity uh, boom for AI could propel the economy and dodge a, a, a downturn. But it also could take years to see this To come to fruition. So she's kind of hedging her bets. She said it may not come soon enough for companies to avoid layoffs. Folks, AI is actually going to cause layoffs, period. So you better be in the right um, industry. Anyway, uh, she goes on to say that recently home prices have started to recover uh, uh, because of favorable bank lending that h- h- builders are doing themselves and these different financing uh, places. She thinks that we actually could be setting up for a bullish time. Who knows? We'll just have to see. But here's the main thing. Price is truth and the technicals will lead the fundamentals. And we'll talk about that. Um, By the way, the last thing I was going to talk about, I talked about OSAIC, uh, the the new uh, uh, company that's going to be committing with uh, 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 LPL. That is actually, the main piece of that is actually the old AIG brokerage unit, the old trading arm of AIG before they got in trouble and needed a bailout for the financial crisis. All right, so before we get into the markets Okay. before we get into the markets, I want to talk about a big actually Isha is going to talk about this big fundamental shift that could be occurring and it actually will be bullish uh, for U.S. companies. And that's India versus China. And India is trying to take on China as the new global uh, supplier. So Isha, tell us a little bit about that and what's going on.
3: Yeah, so today I wanted to talk about a topic that has been trending over the past month, especially with the recent visit of the Prime Minister of India, Modi, and that is investing in India. As global dynamics have shifted and the U.S. and other countries are trying to rethink their dependence on China, there's this realization that India actually holds a tremendous potential as an investment destination. In fact, with recent geopolitical developments and economic uncertainties, many countries are actually exploring new manufacturing hubs. And where are they looking? India. India has a massive population of over 1.3 billion people, and it's actually on track to become the world's most populous nation, passing China. In fact, as of the year 2100, India's population will be around 1.5 billion, while China's will be around 800 million. And India's large, young demographic is especially important, because they're all very well educated and can speak fluent English. And that's really important in this day and age. But what really sets India apart? Well, India's economy is already the sixth largest in the world, and its markets have been performing exceptionally for its size. India has also been actively implementing economic reforms, making it easier for businesses to operate and thrive. The Make in India initiative, for instance, has been instrumental in attracting foreign investment. In fact, Apple has actually shifted some of its iPhone assembly to India and away from Chinese, market, Chinese factories. Um, India has emerged as a global leader in information technology and software services with a strong startup culture. The country has become a hub for innovation and technological advancements with sectors like biotech, renewable energy, and AI gaining momentum. Additionally, India has recovered strongly from the COVID-19 pandemic and is forecasted to contribute 15% of 2023's global economic expansion and drive a fifth of global growth this decade. So if you're looking for new international investments with a lot of growth, India would be the place to start.
0: All right. There you go. Now, the, 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 but the two main takeaways, uh, for, for, you know, uh, for, you forget all the words. The main thing is India demographics. So they are a much younger population and they got a huge workforce. China, because they had that one baby policy for years and doing all that stuff, their population is aging. They've got a workforce problem. That's going to be a big issue. Secondly, is that they speak fluent English the chinese don't so it's hard think about it when i'm when i'm when i'm calling a big company and i need some customer service if i hit a call center in india it's a lot easier to understand than just about any other place in the world so but here's the main thing from a a geopolitical so because of covid covid really exposed how vulnerable we were to china i mean this is a national security uh, problem if you got everything you're getting made from china now you got one supplier, they decide to cut you off just like Russia's going to cut off the oil and gas to europe right so now you you, you there's there's no way uh, uh to get that so with companies if number one if I've got one supplier and they decide to cut me off, they can wipe my up my business. If I've got two or more suppliers, now I can play them off against each other, and I can negotiate so not only is it better for your overall safety for long term planning for the company it's actually a good business so that you don't the your manufact your manufacturing arm doesn't start squeezing you for profits and making big demands it's kind of like you know suppliers that get lined up with Costco or Sam's all of a sudden it becomes 70 80% of all their business Costco starts squeezing them and demanding them to lower their prices even more and, and getting them cheaper and it gets them in trouble. This is just the reverse example where the supplier has all the prob, uh, uh, power and they start raising prices on you and you can't keep prices under control. So this is a huge, huge trend. And the, the two main places, I think India is going to be number one, but a lot, some of the manufacturing is also going to Mexico. All right. Well, thanks. Isha. Um, Let's now go to the markets because I want to talk about this. Sh- you know, so the big philosophical debate. Now, folks, we are a tactical asset allocator, and we, we uh, make adjustments as needed. So we're not really the long-term buy-and-hold pie chart group. But the big debate raging is now that yields are 5 or 5.5% or higher, does that 60/40 strategy or a similar strategy, where you got a kind of a mixed bonds or balanced portfolio, is that the way to go again? It got slaughtered last year. It was absolutely not the way to go. Now all these articles are coming out. Sorry, I hit the desk. Articles coming out about why that strategy is dead, and because all the big brokerage firms are reevaluating and saying 60/40 is dead. Makes me, as a contrarian, think it's probably time to to reevaluate and look at that because maybe it's time again. And I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm saying if you're just buying and holding, you need to look and you need to figure out what would make you sell because you need to have some kind of exit strategy, in my opinion, whether it's 200 day moving average or something longer or something shorter. We actually use all kinds of stuff. So with that, Don, why don't you take it over and tell us what the markets are telling us?
1: Sure. We've been, uh, Zach, can you show the screen, please?
0: You's got know. it you, so charge you up. Is yeah. Na-
1: yep here's the nasdaq one hundred. We've been uh commenting in all our videos that it is historically extremely extended from its short term and intermediate term moving average that being the twenty one day that's the green line on the chart and the red line the fifty day moving average. It peaked on uh six fifteen at eleven point six percent above the 50-day moving average. Anything over 7% is considered extended. So you can obviously see how far extended it's got. So last week's uh, Friday video that I did, the title was, will we correct through time or through price? Uh, You just don't maintain uh, this type of an extension. Reversion to the mean is practically guaranteed. The question is when, and the question is, uh, how swiftly or how harshly will it be? Is it gonna be uh, a couple of paper cuts or is it gonna be a knife slicing open a wrist? And it, luckily it hasn't been the knife slice, but there've been a couple of uh, semi-harsh uh, drops over the last week, But and then we gapped down this morning, but we put in the lows pretty quickly. So right now uh, the market, and you can see by where we closed two days ago, We had a rally yesterday uh, and where we are today is just a little bit higher than where we closed two days ago. But the distance from the 50-day moving average has gone down from 11.6 to 7.7 over the last uh, six trading sessions. So the pullback is happening Uh, before we resume the uptrend. Well, maybe I'm being presumptuous. Will Will we resume the uptrend? We don't ever predict. We take our cues from price and from volume. Uh, But we're now 2% away from the 21-day moving average. That's not really historically extended at all. Uh, So very clearly, you can see on the chart how things have uh, pulled back toward the mean over the last five sessions with four of them being down, one of them being positive. Let's go over to the S&P 500 because it's um, strongly influenced by tech. By far, uh, tech stocks are the biggest percentage of the S&P 500. And we did get as far as 6% extended from the 50-day moving average on the 15th. And historically, that is considered extended and and look for a pullback. And we've gotten that pullback back on the S&P 500. We're all the way back to 3.6% from the 50-day moving average, which is very normal. So all in all, the pullback in tech has been fairly orderly. And it's happening over uh, a time period that it's not really had massive gaps down and, and forced you to be able to liquidate. You can make intraday decisions rationally based on price instead of having uh, you know a bunch of stops hit on a panic level. But the bad news—that's that, the—that's the bright side. I'll say that uh, we're pulling back in a normal fashion. Uh, on the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P. But the bad news is the breadth that we had hoped for and had talked about uh, from participation by small caps and mid caps has really deteriorated over the last five sessions. You can see on small caps, we've had, uh, this is our fifth day down in a row after starting to put in a handle from the right side of the cup that was forming. And now we broke below the 21 day moving average today on small caps so this is as of twelve ten eastern time uh on friday mid caps slightly stronger but not that much also a five day pullback just barely below their 21 day moving average and um also unfortunately the dow has broken below the 21 day moving average, but bounced at the 50 day. This is also a very uh, orderly pullback for the Dow. It's just that uh, it lagged substantially. You can tell by the relative strength line that I'm showing here. Uh, and therefore it was very quick uh, to get to the 21 and the 50 day moving average. So obviously while we want it to hold uh, those levels, we're paying more attention to the S&P uh, and the NASDAQ. Uh, we do have some, uh, a long position in the small cap index, which we uh, are looking at possibly some of our uh, stops getting hit by the end of the day today, uh, if we don't show some strength into the close. But uh, the bottom line for the market is we've been talking about the big rally in AI and the big seven tech leaders. We got very extended. We're pulling back in a somewhat normal fashion, not anything overly scary. Uh, and it's the small caps and the mid caps that are really causing the problem more than from a breadth standpoint, more than what, uh, the, uh, pullback in the big seven is showing us. Dan, I know you always have a question.
0: Uh, actually, actually, that was very good. I don't, you're very succinct. Nobody more shocked than me, Don. Hey, hey, hey! By, by the way, <laughs> sorry, couldn't help it. Hey, hey! Before before we go on to the guys, I did have the mailbag I can sneak in right now, or do you want to do that afterward? It seems like a good time, folks. As you yeah, can see we're pro- we're producing on the air. We're not a professional show, so <laughs> all right. So this says this is actually was sent to Michael. Dear Michael, suggestion for Friday. Team Revere talks a lot about SSO, the two time leverage SPY S S&P. and long. However, I have heard that you must be careful about leveraged ETFs due to contango. Heard it is a short-term and not for long-term use. Would be an interesting subject as a proper use of SSO, TQQQ, etc. TQQ is a triple. Uh, Thanks so much, Dr. M. Uh, My response was, we have discussed this topic at different times over the past years, but it is important to revisit. Uh, Thanks for the suggestion. So, Don, with that, why don't you explain what he's asking
1: sure we the way we manage portfolios is we take take a look at uh half of the portfolio and we put it into leveraged index products for the s p 500 because sector rotation is taking place constantly within the s p 500 when you have a day when you're doing a massive sell-off in tech Unless all 11 sectors are down, what you normally see is that money coming out of that is flowing into uh, from growth to value sectors, from uh, growth to defensive sectors, and just from generally tech, maybe into financials or into basic materials or uh, one of the other non-growth sectors. But all that rotation takes place within the S&P 500. This is why it's very difficult for active managers to beat the S&P 500 if they're staying fully in the market. You can, you can get what's called crisis alpha, where when you get out of the way, we take advantage of that in a major way when we break below the 200-day moving average uh, because we can go to cash. The typical mutual fund managers that have to stay all in just have to bite the bullet and uh, hope they allocate to more defensive sectors within the S&P. Uh, on the other hand, Uh, when the market wind is at our back, we wanna take full advantage of the wind being at our back. So when we're above the 200, above the 50 and above the 21, we wanna use the leverage product to uh, enhance our returns. Now it's true that they don't stay constantly, like SSO is a two-time S&P. It doesn't stay there constantly. In a choppy market or a downtrending market, you will get a uh, bit worse than, than you wanna be, but it's not substantial. Uh, right now, we've got five different, six different buys of SSO that we did since May 5th, and they're all within 1.93 to 1.97 uh, versus the two times that we would expect them to be. But let's step back and say, why are we doing it? We're doing it to take better advantage of uh, the return on our capital. Uh, the fact that you don't quite get the two times to me, uh, as long as you know that all we all we do from time to time is add a little bit. It's it's kind of like topping off your gas tank. We just add a little bit more to get back to the two times leverage that we need to be. Um, and the it, it has nothing to do with contango. Contango is when a, a trading instrument like oil USO. For example, if you pulled up a chart of USO and you pulled up a chart of crude, you would see USO doing substantially worse. Uh, It's because these types of ETNs uh, are made up of the returns of varying uh, allocations over the next few futures contracts. So that's where the contango comes place for anything that's based on the futures contract. SSO isn't based on any kind of a futures contract. So it's decay. It's uh, somewhat minor. Yes, they're not meant for long-term because, uh, and by long-term, we're really meaning years. We aren't gonna hold these forever if the market goes into and profits on them. If we get too extended to the upside, we'll be hedging them. There's a lot of different what the instrument is and why you wanna use the instrument. But for us, uh, SSO does the job perfectly. Uh, the triples, uh, are a little bit more, uh, if you if you wanna hold them for months, there's gonna be slightly, the reason for the decay is because uh, you reset every day uh, what your baseline is. So if you would have two minor days down and then one big day up, that double of the day up is gonna give you more return than those couple of minor days down did. So you have to understand the products, how they work, Uh, We constantly monitor the decay, uh, what we're into simply by dividing the return on SSO versus the return of the S&P when we bought it. As I said, uh, we've held these for uh, anywhere from five weeks to eight weeks, and they're all 1.93% or better versus uh, the S&P 500. So yes, it's a, it's, something you need to be observant of but the fact that you're doing it is to keep capital either for hedging or for putting it into um, t-bills or into some other investment we're only doing it to to use less capital to get an equivalent return and a tiny bit then we'll just uh, add a little bit to the um to the percentage to get us back up to the, to the two times that we're targeting for. Did that make sense, Dan? Or yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just, let me just add,
0: add add a couple of things. So, so what he said is absolutely right. You have a daily reset, so they reset every day. And so it actually depends on the order of the gains and losses over the few days of whether you're going to get a little bit. Better than two times of the return, or a little bit worse than the two times return. So, that when Don's saying 1.93 or 1.97, he's saying we didn't get quite two, you got 1.97, so you missed out of that 0.3. Okay, now, so it's not a perfect double, not a perfect track, but it's very, very close. And the like he said, the reason we would do it, rather than using 30% of our capital to buy the S&P on an ETF or a fund, we can buy 15% of a double. That leaves 15% of our cash left to buy a couple stocks or do something else. And we're not buying these for years either. So the decay, the shorter time period you're holding period, the less that decay happens. That decay or that tracking error happens the longer you hold it is what happens, really. But it's the tool just like anything else. Now, if you're trying to do like that asset allocation pie chart buy and hold, which we don't, do, we don't believe in for various reasons, we think there's a better mousetrap. Um, if you do it that way, then yeah, then you don't really want to use leverage products. There's no reason. Now, the only reason you would is if you wanted to go more than a 100% long And so then you would buy a, being fully invested, you could buy a couple leveraged products and you'd be 120% long. It's kind of like going on margin, but without the margin, excess margin interest borrowing. Okay. So there's a lot of different ways you can use those leveraged ETFs. They're just a tool, just like a knife or a gun is a tool. It can be very dangerous in the hands of someone not using it right. And it can be very beneficial to someone that's using it right to cut a stake or whatever. So it's how the tool is used. It's really the user that makes it dangerous, not the ETF itself. So, in any event, hope that hope that puts a nice bow on it. Don, go ahead and let's let's talk to the team.
1: Yeah, uh, good summary there, Dan. Um, let's go first to Ted. Ted's going to talk about VCP, which is a volatil- volatility contraction pattern, and is uh, a nice setup uh for entry into some some low risk entries into various positions so ted you wanna uh we've got a nice little chart for the people uh watching at home and ted you want to take it away and discuss this this is a chart from netflix
2: in william o'neill's uh famous book how to make money in stocks in the section where he talks about patterns and analyzing bases he talks about supply not coming to market um, when buying breakouts and analyzing bases and so minervini so volatility contraction pattern VCP is a term coined by Minervini years ago. And he, he said that it took him years to realize what O'Neill really meant about supply not coming to market. And as Minervini kind of had some proteges come along, he coined this term because it's a great and easy way to explain how to analyze the supply and demand of a base. And so patterns such as cups, cup with handles, double bottoms, like don't really often come by that much because they're formed during deeper corrections and bear markets like we just had now. Um, However, like all patterns have volatility contraction to have a low risk entry point. And you realize that people got super stuck up on finding patterns that they weren't analyzing bases correctly. And so on the screen here, I have Netflix back in 2009, coming out of the great financial crisis. It's in a stage two uptrend in a base coming out of a VCP breaking out. Uh, Volatility contraction patterns usually have three to five contractions. And you can see I marked three of them. The first one was 28% the second one was 17% and the third one is about 7%. And so if you have more than like five, six, seven, then it it starts to become a little bit abnormal. Um, And so now I'll walk you guys through the analyzing the supply and demand of this base, and it'll it'll make a lot of sense. And I think it'll be pretty eye-opening in your future trading and looking at charts. So on the left side of the chart, you have the stock running up in a stage two uptrend. And at some point, you have profit takers, so that pushes the stock down and you have this first correction, that's about 28%. However, like you have people buying at the tops, right? So that's, that's what uh, Minervini coin trap buyers. And then once a the stock corrects, you have bottom fishers, So that then pushes the stock back up. And at some point you have trap buyers breaking even because that's just usually how investor psychology works. It's like, oh, I'm break even now. I'd rather just take it off. And so that puts more selling pressure on top of bottom fishers taking profits. So now you have that second 17% correction. And now once again, you have more bottom fishers coming in supporting the stock, which pushes the stock back up. And now you have more trap buyers from the previous iteration uh, taking profits. You have bottom fishers um, taking profits as well. And that leads to a third contraction. But As you can see, the contractions get more shallow, get shallower and shallower as you continue and this last one is only about 7%. But like once again, the pattern and like the the forces of supply and demand continue and you have bottom fissures that um, hold up the stock. And finally, like in the volume area, I noted that volume's below average. So that's another signal that supply has stopped coming to the market coupled with the tight price action of less than double digits. And that, if you can see, The future price action leads to explosive action because if you have an imbalance of supply and demand, you have low supply and then huge demand coming in from either retail investors and institutional investors, that will lead to explosive price action. And why the volatility contraction pattern is so great, you get a low risk entry point, but also if you get your timing right, it can lead to quick profits immediately and everyone wants to be at a profit from the beginning and usually those are the best winners.
0: It makes it easier for your stop losses too <laughs> yeah. so so but is this can you you try to use this for any stock i mean obviously you want to pick the best of the best you want the leading stocks but this is kind of a a, a pattern you can look for setting the volume metrics for setting up for any stock
2: yeah and and for any asset class as well you can use it for crypto futures. So you could um, use
0: it for ETFs and indexes as well. Yeah. Whole, okay.
2: Yeah, exactly. But it's it's the best in individual stocks, especially growth stocks because there's more inefficiencies with pricing because like analyst revisions, like they can't really fully discount triple digit earnings growth. So it's a lot more efficient in especially in growth equities. And also cryptocurrency, um this this works really well in because no one knows how to price a crypto. So it's it's all set- short- it's,
0: it sounds a little little similar to Lowry's buying strength and selling pressure because really you're focused on the buying and selling volumes
2: mm-hmm. yep. coming in. Yep. Okay, yep. and and what is great about this it's timeless. If you were to go study like for example, 100 years ago, Jesse Livermore's like thousand percent gain in Bethlehem Steel, you'll see the same characteristics, uh, volatility contraction all the way up where he sold. So. Yeah, it's a timeless it's a timeless analysis of price and volume
1: and bases. Supply and demand and fear and greed, the the things that are common in the market throughout history. All right, Ted, nice presentation. Uh appreciate that. So let's move on to Connor. And uh Connor, what are you going to talk about this week?
4: Yeah, can you guys hear me? We can. Yes, sir. Wait. Yeah, so um, today I wanted to kind of piggyback off Ted, I wanted to talk about another uh, technical setup that can be extremely powerful in the markets in a strong uptrending bull market, and especially when uh, coming out of the bear market. So the specific setup is the high tight flag. Um, It's a rare one, it doesn't occur as much as others, such as the VCP, but basically what this setup entails is it begins when a stock moves up over hundred percent in a short period of time uh typically four to eight weeks and then you want to see it correct sideways um no more than 25 percent uh, and a time frame for this is about three to five weeks and then as it takes out those recent highs that's typically the trigger point so um one stock in 2004 axon this used to be taser this is one stock that was arguably the most powerful stock in the market at the time. And it had um, just numerous high tight flag breakouts. So I'm gonna have Don pull up the weekly there in 2004. I mean, just looking at this chart, you can clearly tell this is extremely strong stock, but that orange line, which is the 10 week line, um, that first run up it had, it was well over a hundred percent. And then you saw three to five days of tight action. And it catapulted up off the 10 week moving average. So that was the first high tight flag. <clears throat> and then it moved up another 100%. And it formed same formation 567 weeks tight, and then had another powerful thrust and it really did that the whole way up until it topped. And um, if you're following you know, the William O'Neill cell rules, that could have been a time to get out because that that weekly candle overtook the prior three weeks of upside and it was on huge volume. So these tools are, I wanted to bring this up because I think some people think, oh man, the stocks ran up too far, but it's really important to study study stocks historically and see that how they act and stuff because just cause it's gone up super high doesn't mean you should just sell it. And although, and if you would have had you know, tracking the three to four weeks tight breakout, you could have added to your position and it would have been no reason to get out of it. Um, eventually when the stock topped was when you had a bearish engulfing on the weekly. So this setup is rare. Um, it could have a, a high failure rate, but if you really do catch one of the strongest stocks in the market, um, this is a good gauge to get an entry in there. So something I follow and I think can be a value, especially if we're coming out of the spare market right now.
0: Well, hey, Connor, that's a great point because o- one, of, one of Bill O'Neill's famous quotes was, you want to buy high and sell higher, okay? He was one of the first guys that, well, he was one of the original guys that really came out and said, look, PE, and I'm paraphrasing, PEs are earned. In other words, if that stock is cheap, the 8, 9, 10 PE in a good market, th- that means they're junk, they're trash, And you're bottom fishing. You're buying junk off the bottom. You're, quote, a value investor. Here's the problem. How long will it take for people to recognize that, yes, that's a good value? So you may buy something that's bottomed out and low, but it make two or three years to recover. And Bill O'Neill realized that it was better to find the leading stocks that are changing the world and the best of the best. And there were some repetitive patterns that you could actually take them and buy them, and they had a propensity to move higher. So he kind of changed kind of the thinking where it's not all about cheap stocks. In other words, it's cheap for a reason. If you go back and look at some of the stocks with the highest PEs before the tech wreck, before they, now obviously some of them are out of business, but the ones that are survived, Microsoft, Apple, I mean there are a few that are still some of the best stocks in the world. And they had high PEs then. Some of the Companies with low PEs, they didn't make it. So just because a PE is high, don't dismiss it. You actually may want to look at it more closely. They earned that high PE. And if they're having, so if a company has a 100 PE, you think, man, that's expensive. But if they're making 200% a year, let's make it simple. If they're making 100% a year, that means that PE is going to be 50 next year. And 25 the next year, then 12 and a half. So if they're earning, if their revenue and growth rate is in the hundreds of percent, that PE is going to get cut in half very quickly. That's why people bid up those stocks. So PEs, higher PEs, you don't need to be scared of. You need to manage them just like lower PEs. But just because a PE has a lower, just because a company has a lower PE, doesn't mean it's a lower risk stock. Anyway, go ahead, Don.
1: Uh, that's a great example, uh, Connor, of you, you know, especially with the weekly, if you just use the ten week moving average as your sell signal, uh, that would have kept you in that entire run where you're fortunate enough to get in. And I that was right coming out of the uh, the the dot com bear market when that uh, it had was a new product, it had the n, which is to me, the second most important letter in can Slim. Uh, after the M in market. The market's got to be right, uh, but the N, a company with a new product and Taser certainly was it at the time. Thanks very much for that. Let's move over to Michael now. Mike, what's your topic for this week?
5: So it's actually perfect. Uh, I was going to talk about growth and uh, mention mention a few things related to, to PE and, and explain a few things. So uh, could it be a, a better setup. And just before I start that, I wanted to mention one thing, uh, going back to Isha's segment about China and India. Uh, earlier this week, I saw some news that Sequoia Capital is, is splitting off their China operations. And there's a lot of pension funds and, and big funds that are moving out of China. So that, that just supports uh, that, that move to India and, and that exodus uh, that's going on in, out of China at the moment.
0: Oh, it's happening. So, yep. You, it's happening.
5: Yeah. Yeah, so Sequoia is one of the the big dogs and if they're splitting off China operations that that's not a a, a good sign. Um so speaking of of growth and multiples, um something that took me a little while to figure out is that there's plenty of good companies that don't make good stocks. And, and <laughs> the reason for that is is that is that is what drives equity returns. If, if you don't have growth, you're not gonna command a high multiple and you're not gonna see that that price appreciation that, that you look for when you're investing. And to get a stock price to go up quickly, the company has to be growing quickly and strong returns come from companies that are growing quickly and have a lot of growth ahead of them. Hence, they, they command uh, a high multiple. And this is why you'll hear a lot of people talk about TAM which is the total addressable market. And if there's a large market for the company to grow into, then it's likely that you'll see a high multiple, either price-to-earnings if the company is profitable and has earnings, or price-to-sales, which is another metric that you look for. Usually, younger companies that don't have the earnings yet, you can use that price-to-sales multiple to see their, their valuation. And most of the time, you'll find these big winners in small caps because this is uh it's a lot easier for a small company to grow and gain market share than for a large company to continue growing. And something that you'll notice as well is that companies that have a history of growing, as soon as that growth slows, the stock can, can take a 50, 60% hit. And it's because the way that the market values companies is, is through these, these multiples and. What that could be is not a, a sign that the company is, is bad or that it's in demise, but it's just that it's slowing down its growth and it's not going to get that same multiple. So, for example, Meta, when they started investing in the metaverse and it looked as though they weren't going to be as profitable as before and their sales were slowing and there were indications that, that their, their business wasn't as good as it used to be, their stock dropped 60%. It still had a, a PE of of about eleven, which is low for a high growth company, but it's still trading at a, at a significant multiple. So it, that just shows you the damage that that can happen due to multiple compression if you don't sustain that that high level of growth. And this doesn't only hold true for stocks. It's also you can use this and look at it at the macro level and. Um, a way that that you can look at it sort of at the macro level is through the actual index itself or or the, the overall economy. And the stock market is a leading indicator of future growth. So that's why you'll notice the stock market will peak or bottom ahead of the economy. And at tops, when the stock market tops, the economic data coming out will still be positive. So it's not as though the economy is in shambles and everything looks horrible. The data is still going to be good, but what actually happens is that the rate of change of that growth is slowing. So something to, important to note is that a slowdown does not mean a weak economy. That, that's, that's really critical. It doesn't mean that the economy is weak. It should, it, GDP will still be increasing, but at a slower rate. So what investors will look at, they'll see that the um, the, the, the slowdown is approaching. The best is behind us. So multiples will start to contract. And, and you'll pay less of a premium for that growth because the growth looks to be in trouble and it, the, the rate of that growth is slowing down. Um, and a few indicators to look at, uh, there, there's three classifications of these indicators. You've got lagging indicators, coincident indicators and leading indicators. And what that means is that lagging indicators tell you where the economy's been. So that's the unemployment rate, corporate profits. And when the market tops, those lagging indicators will still be strong, they'll still look good, but it's the coincident and the leading indicators that you need to pay attention to. And coincident indicators are where we are, they show the turning points close to the overall economy. So things like manufacturing salaries and wages, the index of industrial production, those will begin to slow to show that slowing rate of change, which is where investors start to get a little skeptical. And a slowdown can then turn into a contraction, which is what you want to avoid. So if you see the slowdown coming, a lot of investors either want to hedge by reducing their beta, sell out of certain uh, very cyclical industries, um, uh, consumer discretionary, for example, is something that, that usually takes a hit. Um, and then you've got the leading indicators, and that's where the economy's headed. So the turning points that precede the overall economy and some leading indicators are um, the stock market is a great leading indicator. You've got the yield curve, so people talk about yield curve inversions, and that shows where the economy could be headed. Money supply, housing permits, ISM new orders, things like that. So when you hear all this economic data coming out, and every week we've got different data points that are coming out, you don't want to look at each one of those data points in isolation. It's you want to you want to plot them where. Um, in terms of what they're related to. So you've got leading indicators, lagging indicators, all coming out at different times. And you wanna put those together to kind of try to triangulate where the overall economy is and where it's headed. So when you get these leading indicators that show that there's a slowdown, you wanna look at the lagging indicators to see where we've been. And if the leading indicators are worse and showing a contraction versus the lagging indicators, that's an indication that we may be entering a slowdown or a contraction and um something that a lot of people talk about as well that's made headlines in this particular economy is is the soft landing versus no landing versus hard landing and what that means is a soft landing is when you've got you've got your growth curve you've got the economy humming along doing well it reaches that point where the rate of change slows and you enter the slowdown, and then the soft landing is when the economy picks back up again and continues, uh, continues the rate of change continues to expand. And that's your soft landing, but what can happen is the hard landing where you get a slowdown and enter contraction. And people have spent centuries trying to predict these things. Uh, you've got macroeconomists predicting recessions and they get it wrong all the time because you never know when it's gonna happen. You never know if the slowdown's gonna turn into a contraction. So that's why the stock market will lead the economy and it'll show inflection points and turning points well ahead of the of the overall economic data.
0: All right, thanks Mike. Good
5: stuff, Good stuff Mike. I got a question for you. I
1: I, I know a lot of people looking yeah. at indicators put a, put a lot of uh validity to consumer confidence numbers. Have you uh what's your opinion on that?
5: So that, that's, a, that's another indicator that you need to um, pay attention to. It's just it, it's a, it's another thing that you add to your list of uh, indicators to, to triangulate where you are in the business cycle. And consumer confidence is a leading indicator that shows, okay, if consumer confidence is dropping, well, then consumer spending, is, especially for discretionary items, is probably going to drop, that can show weakness, You'll get weakness in the economy, so that's just the leading indicator. But you can have other leading indicators that are that are strong and and doing well. So it's just a matter of uh it's almost the way the analogy I would use is it's a uh, it's it's a balance. And on one side you've got the negative data and and the negative sentiment, and then on the other side you've got all the positive data points. And every time something like consumer confidence comes out or PMIs or um, uh housing data you can either put a little grain of salt on the positive or negative and see sort of where things are balancing and if you get more and more data that keeps coming in either for negative eventually that balance is going to tilt in a certain direction and you'll get momentum to that to that direction so it's just a, a data point to look at but it's not uh it's not necessarily the most important it's just a important one
1: pretty uh pretty opposite data came out today from global pmis versus us pmis if i'm not mistaken uh yep is is uh so i i believe i read a headline that the us pmi which came out 15 minutes after the market open indicated that we're uh not in a recession and it expanded is that uh is that accurate
5: um yeah I didn't I didn't actually look at the um I didn't see the the US PMIs I, I saw the uh the the European um and and UK PMIs and those were weak as well as in Japan um but yeah we're definitely seeing a, a bifurcated uh um global economy and the US has been super strong holding up really well while the the eurozone is technically in in recession they've already had these uh two negative uh uh, quarters of GDP, so the the U.S. continues to remain strong, but the question is, uh, either can can the U.S. hold up and and lead the world out of uh, contraction, or uh, is is this global economy eventually going to weigh on the U.S. Um, and then you look at things like employment and um, other leading indicators to to get a a, a sense of what's going on.
1: Well, we know capital goes to where it's treated best, so that's what we always keep our eye on. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks to the team, Dan. Uh, take it away, and you can uh, wrap us up for the week.
0: All right. Listen, I, I wanna I wanna just make one or two comments real quick on on my on Michael's thing. The, he's actually talking about the divergence of these indicate the divergence that I was talking about. The bond market is actually showing flashing recession. And the stock market is actually showing improvement and maybe a shallower recession, or maybe we avoid it. The stock market is actually acting bullish, and the bond market has recently um, been showing with the inverted yield curve. So um, that's important. Uh, Michael, I would kind of consider consumer confidence uh, a, a concurrent indicator, but it really doesn't matter. It's a potato, potato. But the one thing I'd like to point out, the gold, the couple gold nuggets— that Michael and the whole team have been talking about that I want to make sure you guys don't, do, that it doesn't get lost. He was talking about gross stocks and earnings expansion. Folks, in a good market, you want the leading stocks, you want gross stocks. However, in a bad market, leading stocks fall on average 72%. They lead on the way up and they lead on the way down. So Tesla is one of the best performing stocks this year to date. Last year, it was down 69%. So Tesla is not a buy and hold forever. It's a buy and hold. And as long as it acts right, I can look back and say, wow, I held that for this long. But it's got to keep acting right for me to keep holding it. And there's times I want to own Tesla. And there's times I want to not own Tesla. By the way, same thing with the global economy. Folks, there's more risk investing overseas because not only do you have the return over there, you've got to have the currency translation risk when you convert it back into U.S. dollars. Okay, now even if you're investing in U.S. ETFs that invest in foreign assets, they still got to make the conversion inside the ETF. So that currency translation is happening somewhere at some point in the transaction. So what I'm saying is you have two different risk factors. you got the return risk, and then when you convert it from the foreign currency to our U.S. dollars, what was that gain or loss? Because there's going to be a gain or loss when you translate it. Point being is emerging markets especially, but international markets carry more risk than the U.S. If the U.S. is performing better right now, why have anything International. Because I've got this pie chart, this buy and hold, this asset allocation. It's not worth the risk right now, folks. You should not have long-dated bonds until the interest rates actually peak and the Fed starts relaxing. Now, as soon as that happens, then you can go longer out in the yield curve. Conversely, with, or likewise with equities, you want to have U.S. stuff right now, not international. When international starts easing and their economies start to show that they're not contracting anymore, that they're starting to expand. And more importantly, the central banks in Europe take their foot off the throat of the economy and stop raising rates. That's going to be the time to go into Europe, potentially. So that's what the show is about. Where's the best place for your money right now? Right now it's in U.S. and it can be a mix. I just wouldn't have it overseas. Anyway, folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. And before I forget, have a wonderful and safe July 4th next week. We are going to take a a break for one week. Zach is going to be out of town on vacation. I'm actually taking my daughter to New York City where Isha goes to college be staying in Manhattan. And so we're just going to, I mean, we could possibly try to fit it in, but I'm just going to give the team a break and folks enjoy the July 4th weekend or holiday. Remember what it's for. It's for the founding of this country and some, some, a little handful of guys that were pretty crazy, took a big chance and went against the biggest, most powerful country in the world. And for that, we've got the birth of the greatest nation on the, on the planet ever known to man, the most charitable liberal country on the planet, despite what anybody tells you. Don't forget it. That's what July 4th is about. Anyway, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Just send them to revereasset.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button. They can just put their name and email address in, and we won't spam them or reach out to them in any way. It's up to them to reach out to us if they want a, 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 a stock, information on a stock, or they just have a topic they want discussed on the show, or they have they want to complimentary portfolio review. And, and likewise, right next to the subscribe button, there's actually a contact button and it sends me an email directly. And you can, you can ask any topics or whatever questions you may have. You can also email me directly at dan at revereasset.com or anyone on the team, Don, Michael, Ted, or Connor at revereasset.com. And you can always, always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Folks, we'll talk to you next week. On your money
1: because it's not how much you make in the market it's how much of that you can keep